Welcome to the Review Named Podcast. Well, with me this week, or I'm as always Jordan. With me this week, we have Sam. Hello. And Chris. Hey, how's it going? So over the course of the hour, we're going to be doing a news roundup as we always do. We're going to be talking about some TV shows, the summer seasons of Breaking Bad and the newsroom. We're going to be playing a game of Would You Rather. We're going to be revisiting the Review Named Movie Club and discussing Bronson. And as always, we'll be announcing the Rachel Tardiff Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week winner. Um, so why don't we go ahead and get started with the news roundup. Um, not too much happened in the world of pop culture this week, so we'll be talking about some, uh, some smaller stories than usual, but I think, I think the few we are, are going to discuss are actually fairly interesting. Um, big news to begin with, Daniel Craig has signed on for at least two more Bond movies, which means he will at the very least surpass Pierce Brosnan's run as James Bond, and will be in spinning distance of surpassing Roger Moore and Sean Connery's runs. What do you guys think about this? <coughs> I, I think it's great news. I uh, I love Daniel Craig's Bond. I want to see more Bond films with him. I think this is a win all around. Uh, I love Daniel Craig's Bond as well, though I want to see another good Bond movie. Because right now, Dan, the only Bond movie that I loved from him was Casino Royale, the first one he did. Quantum of Solace is literally a blank spot in my brain. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't think, think that's Craig, though. I think that's more. Uh, it was more of a very studio formulaic Bond film than. Uh, well, what I'm saying is, was. I, I think he's a good Bond, but like you said, I mean the the legacy is dependent on how good the movies are, right? I I think that Daniel Craig is a great Bond as as a, as a huge Bond guy. Um, it's hard for me to say anyone's going to beat the standard Sean Connery, but I actually think Daniel Craig could go down as the greatest Bond, but it is dependent on the quality of the movies. I thought Casino Royale was one of, easily my top, in my top five Bond movies of all time, possibly eventually even becoming my favorite, I think. Quantum of Solace is, is resolutely middle of the pack. I mean, it's no Moonraker, it's not, uh, the world is not enough, but it's also, it's not a Goldfinger or a Casino Royale. Uh, so I think the, the quality of Skyfall will say a lot about whether we're looking at a legendary run or another, you know, Pierce Brosnan middling run. Well, the problem Absolutely. with Quantum of, Quantum of Solace, it wasn't, like like you said, it wasn't, like, bad enough as, you know, so to be, like, hated, at least. It, at least I remember, like, hating some of the Pierce Brosnan movies. Uh, Quantum, actually, of, Quantum of Solace, well, actually, I don't remember which ones I hate exactly. But, I was just uh, going to say, actually, <laughs> it's, it's time to play one of my favorite games, which is Sam, describe the plot of any Pierce Brosnan Bond movie. I can't. It's all some facial reconstruction of an Asian media mogul, I think. Um, but the, my point is basically, uh, Quantum of Solace. Like, if it was like laughably bad, at least I would remember it and maybe even enjoy it on some level. But the thing is, like, you know, it was still very competently made, and you know, Daniel Craig is still a very good Bond. Um, but I just, I don't remember anything that happened in it because one of the Bond girls was named Strawberry Fields. I remember that. Was one of the Bond girls named Strawberry Fields? Are you serious? I don't remember this at all. It it wasn't, she was Agent Fields in the movie, but if you looked at the credits, her name was Strawberry Fields. And I remember doing that and enjoying it. I, wow. This completely slipped under the radar for me. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely watching Quantum of Solace again before Skyfall comes out because it's a thing that I would do. I actually, if I, you know, had any free time, I'd be watching all the Bond movies again because I love them. But I'm at least going to watch Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace 
to be, you know, geared up. And I think the trailers for Skyfall look amazing. I really think that it could be an incredible movie. I mean, all trailers <laughs> look awesome for everything, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off. Who is I mean, who's directing Skyfall? It's uh Sam Mendes of American oh, Beauty and Road oh, to that could be interesting. I don't think of Sam Mendes as like an action guy, though. No one does. Yeah. <laughs> this, I mean, this is his first real action movie. Um, and Javier Bardem is going to be the bad guy, which is going to be awesome. Uh, I think that's great. I think it's now coming back to me, uh, Quantum of Solace. I think uh, a criticism against the movie was that it was kind of shot like one of the Bourne movies. And that it was like very like a frantic... And I don't know, maybe was one of the Bourne guys directing it or something? I'm looking, I actually have the box sitting right next to me because I just, I just got my uh, copies of it sent here from home so that I could watch them. Let's see, it was directed by, um, why is this so hard to find on the back Mark of the box? Mark Foster. Mark Foster. Forster. Oh. Mark Forster. I don't, see, I don't even remember that happening. Who also did uh, Finding Neverland yeah. and Stranger Than Fiction and Monsters Oh, Ball. wow. That's a... It's a weird pedigree for a Bond movie. Well, it looks like they're going with like non-action guys for action movies. Yeah, and is that Which, a good thing? I mean, uh, I, think, uh, I didn't. Martin I didn't Campo, love who did um, Martin Campo, who did uh, Casino Royale, also did Goldeneye, and those were, I think, two of the best, most recent Bond films. Um, I agree. So it's, I mean, there's, I, I, I think one of the bigger problems with the Bond films of recent memory, and one of the reasons I didn't like Quantum of Solace is. They the Bond films all became so formulaic to a point of where you could kind of predict what was going to happen next, like in ten to fifteen minute chunks. Like, okay, he's going to meet first girl here. There's going to be chase with X vehicle here. Going to meet second girl here, and Casino Royale nicely bucked that trend, and then Quantum of Solace came along and just embraced it wholeheartedly. So I'm kind of hoping that we learn a lesson from that, and um, Skyfall will again know that you don't have to go back to the Bond formula to make a good Bond movie. And in fact, straying from that formula is, I think, where success can be found. I mean, I think, I think you're right to a point. I actually, I think the Bond formula works. I think, and I'm, I'm fine with the Bond movies always fitting the, like, he meets the first girl, she dies, he meets the second girl, he meets the villain at X locale, finds out the plan, goes into the, like, all the, all the steps to a Bond movie work to me. And there's a, there's a comfort to them, and I think you can make a great Bond movie within the steps. And in fact, I'm, I'm actually more impressed when a, when a movie comes along that is so competently made within that those tight constructs. Uh, but I, also, the more formulaic the Bond franchise gets, the more you can have people come along and buck the trend and make a very interesting movie that's completely different. Well, I yeah, think I... With, go ahead, Sam. Go ahead, uh, Sam. I think with... Um... Casino Royale, it wasn't so much outside of the Bond uh, formula, but at the same time, we had, you know, we had uh, Daniel Craig, you know, pretty much winking at the camera about, like, fuck you, Bond people. I'm like, shake and not stirred, I don't care. Just give me something, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, stuff like that. Um, and I think Casino Royale, uh, to me, it didn't totally feel like a Bond movie. It, uh, it actually, I mean... I, I thought it was great. It's one of my favorite Bond movies I've ever seen. Um, I think it stayed in it, but it also felt fresh for some reason. And maybe that's just because Daniel Craig was new and he had blue eyes and blonde hair. But uh, to me, it, it kind of felt fresh. I don't know. Well, it was also a more emotional story. You know, it was it was whenever they do the Bond falling in love movies, like on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's it's just 
you see the soul of Bond, and that's very different because usually he's the cold calculating killer type. So I think it had that going for it as well. And I, I kind of like, even though I'm not, I was not a big fan of Quantum of Solace, I kind of like that it was clearly, it was really the first sequel that the Bond franchise has ever done. You know, it, it clearly followed from the story elements of Casino Royale. Um, and I liked that. And I think Skyfall may or may not continue that trend a little bit. But um, we should probably move on and talk about some of the other news from this week. The next sure. Star Trek film uh, had its title announced, and it is going to be called Star Trek Into Darkness, which I think is a really stupid title. I don't know how you guys feel. Yeah, I, I, I could have gone for just another Star Trek 2, no qualifier after that. That would have been fine for me. Star Trek 2, Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, now that is a that movie works. I would see. <laughs> two star, two track. Um, I I agree that it's kind of a stupid title, but I enjoyed the first one so much. I really don't care. Oh yeah, I mean, there's there's I, no doubt I'm seeing this. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think Jordan and I we talked about this like right after seeing the first one, and we were talking about how how much this felt like a uh, like a TV pilot. Like this would be the greatest reboot of Star Trek anyone could possibly imagine. I was, yeah, I was so blown away by the movie that I, I did. I, I, a, I thought that it was structured like a great TV pilot, but also the cast was so good together that I, I just wanted to watch that every week. I was, you know, I was upset when I left the movie that I couldn't go back next week for another episode. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I would absolutely be down and for I that. And I mean, with J.J. Abrams and with that cast, like, none of them, none of them were big enough that it couldn't have been a TV show. And looking at uh, the Star Trek... Uh, IMDb page for the next movie. Two things to nerd out about. First, the more minor one. Noel Clark, also known as Mickey Smith from Doctor Who, is supposedly going to be in it. Mickey! And Mickey! Ricky! <laughs> um, and, more importantly, Benedict Cumberbatch is rumored to be Khan. I, I have heard that, that sounds awesome. awesome. Yeah, I've heard that rumor, yeah. Um, and Benedict Cumberbatch might be one of my favorite actors, just period. Forget about just Sherlock. He is awesome. He's, no, he's just great um, at everything. You know what? I I disagree, though, that we need to see Khan again. I mean, I if you really think about it, like, Star Trek really only has one villain, and I don't know that we need to keep going back to that well. I, I would have... I, I kind of liked the idea of these characters now that we've picked that point, we've broken from the original continuity, and I, I thought that was handled great in the first movie. This whole idea of, like, addressing concerns of the fans and finding a way to move forward. I... I, I think these creators built up enough goodwill that I would have been happy following them into any sort of like new territory, new characters. I don't really think we need to dredge up Khan again. But if they want to do it, I'm not going to argue either. Now, I mean, I guess it, I suppose it's possible that he won't play Khan. Um, yeah. It, I mean, has it? Is it definitely that it's Khan, or is it just that like Benedict Cumberbatch is a rumor? Movie and I they don't it, know. It, it, everyone, everyone thinks. Star Trek, it's just a rumor that's been floating around for a while, neither confirmed nor denied. Yeah, like, I, I think it's been that... denied a few times, but in that Hollywood kind of, we don't want to... Like Anne Hathaway is not playing Catwoman, yeah. and Marion Cotillard is not exactly. playing Tali Al Ghul. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think it's been confirmed that the villain will be Khan, or that Benedict Cumberbatch is actually going to be in the movie. It's just like, it's the rumor. Um, and if both of those things are true, I'm sure it'll be great. If If... If Star Trek Into Darkness is half as good a movie as the first Star Trek was, I'll be fine because that was 
that was one of the best, you know, summer blockbuster popcorn movies uh, in recent memory. And I don't even, I'm not even a Star Trek guy. Like, I, I haven't even seen Wrath of Khan, you know, the original. I haven't seen, I've only seen one episode of uh, the Star Trek show. I'm not a Trekkie, and I loved that movie. You should well, check think, out Wrath of Khan if you get a chance. I think J.J. Abrams did a great job, you know, reintroducing these characters. And it was, I think, faithful enough for hardcore Star Trek fans. I think some people might have had quibbles about fucking with the continuity and playing with time like that. But I think for the most part, I think it was pretty well received. Um, my Star Trekness only goes through... Uh, I've seen most of Next Generation and most of Deep Space Nine, both which I enjoyed. Uh, I hadn't really watched a lot of the original series. I've only watched a few episodes. Well, and you know my problem. I would have to start with the original series. I'm, I'm too continuity. So someday I will watch Star Trek because you know, I don't think you can be a pop culture nerd as I am and ne- have never seen any Star Trek series. I think it's like a huge gap in my pop culture experience. So someday I'll watch them when I have Looking- time to watch like five television shows. Looking looking back on because I, I was I was a big Trek fan back in the day. Um, I think I watched. I, I think it was very similar to you, Sam. I watched most of Next Generation, most of Deep Space Nine, and I went back and I saw some of the original series stuff. Uh, every now and then, like if it's on like a channel somewhere, I'll tune in a little bit. And um, I think I actually tried to seek out some of the uh, original series stuff after the after uh, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, and I think that actually holds up. Uh, on a second look better than some of the other stuff does just because it's it, it's just such a product of the times it's so wild it's so out there it's so colorful and weird like there just some of the stuff that happens on there is just so delightfully bizarre like you have this episode where these little like balls of fur that just like they just keep like breeding with each other and the, the enterprise is literally just filling up with these balls of fur and people girls. are going to be suffocated yeah yeah it, it's, I know it's, it's just such a weird yeah it's fantastic. Yeah, no, I will, I'll definitely um, watch it. Maybe it's great stuff. Maybe Check at it out. some point on the podcast, uh, if I ever sit down and watch the show, we'll do a segment on uh, talking about Star Trek and what I thought of it, and what everyone who's actually already seen it thinks about it. So keep listening, and maybe someday we'll do that. Possibly. Um, for now, let's let's shift gears. The VMAs were this week, and I imagine neither of you watched it because I know I didn't because I don't really care about music videos. But um, I figure let's touch on that for a moment. Huh. So. Or music video awards. Yeah, I especially don't care about those. <laughs> we can touch on that or for a MTV moment with um, at this point. best video going to Rihanna for We Found Love in a Hopeless Place and best new artist going to One Direction um, who beat out Fun, Carly Rae Jepsen, Frank Ocean, and The Wanted to get there. Um, first of all, Sam, I think probably next week's podcast we're going to be talking about your One Direction experience. But for now, what do you guys think about these? Chris, you want I think to take Carly Rae Jepsen got. I think Carly Rae Jepsen got robbed. Plain and simple. <laughs> All right. I personally, I think it would be Frank Ocean that got robbed. But you can you can love your Carly Rae all you'd like. Um, I think what's kind of weird about the Video Music Awards is that the uh, musical artist uh, gets the award. Isn't that strange? Because that would be Wait, like what? if you know. If, like, a movie wins Best Picture, then, like, the lead actor, like, accepts the award. Yeah, I think, I, no, I think you're absolutely right. It's a very strange thing that happens. Um, and it's even stranger that no one seems to be commenting on it ever. Like, Well, I don't think people care. And, I mean, I think, I think the nature of music video, it's like, oh, that Beyonce video, you know, the single ladies video, that was her. 
Like someone had, I'm, I'm sure she didn't come up with idea, that idea. She certainly didn't direct it. And she was, you know, she was like the lead actress in it. And all the, all the artists are basically the lead actress and they sometimes write the song, um, but they perform the song. Uh, but I, you know, I don't think anyone wants to see uh, music video directors go up there. I would there. rather watch um, that show, honestly. I think it'd be weird and funny. <laughs> um, I mean, they would never put it on but, television because no one knows who most music video directors are. I think most people only know like ex music video directors who have gone on to be successful directors. But I would watch that show, and I've never watched the VMAs. And I probably never will. Um, you know what though? I think you know MTV. It doesn't have like just a plain old music award, does it? Because I think this is because you know MTV once upon a time was about music videos, and that was how they you know shared artists music with the masses you know this is their grammys so when it was initially invented the idea of the video music awards this is the only way i think people like knew about artists on mtv um so i guess this is what they they never they don't they don't have like the mtv music awards right so i guess this is yeah this is what they have instead so now, the question is, do they have, like, best song versus best music video? No, everything everything really comes down to videos with the exception of the category best new artist. Like, if you read off some of the other categories, it's, like, best hip-hop video, best female video, best rock video. Everything comes back to video, even in categories like choreography or direction, except for the idea of best new artist, which is really their only category that I think you could interpret as purely music. Well, that's interesting then. I, I, I mean, I think, because I wonder, do you think they really go for best? I mean, I'm not going to comment on whether, you know, they get the picks right or wrong or, but do you think it's like, we're, you know, the best, best video is going to go to best song? Or do you think like the actual video itself plays any part in that? I imagine it has to, right? I, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't watch music videos as a rule anyway, and I don't watch the VMA, so I don't know. But I imagine that the video has to be the focus of the video music awards you'd think anyway well but then the problem is is like you would lose that grammy aspect of it because when when else will mtv honor the best music of the year yeah you know because if you take if you take the mtv video music awards for what they are this is basically a short film contest uh and it you know i think it's safe to say it certainly isn't that i think it i think it is their grammys um so, because if you think about it, like those, those, you know, best video nominees, odds are they weren't really the best videos. They were like their picks for just like best pop songs of the year. Yeah, no, I think, I, I definitely think you're right about that. I feel like these are, if you look at the nominees here, these are people who had very popular songs in the last year. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't think it's a question of uh, whether they had the best music video in all. I think it's probably did they have the best song and, or did they do something so cool with their video that it beats out all the other videos that are nominated in the same category? So, I mean, it's probably silly for us to sit around and guess how this works, especially because it's the MTV video music awards. So I'm not sure that it has a, as scientific or rigorous a process as we're even giving it credit for, but, um, I'd be interested to see, Maybe maybe one year uh, one of us will cover the VMAs because I'd be interested to see and learn more about that and how it works. The, the interesting thing I'm seeing was, as I'm looking through here is you you see a lot of people like nominated in multiple categories here, even for like the same video in some instances. It, it just seems like 
a lot of overlap in certain categories, like best male video, video of the year, best hip hop video. Like there could be a lot of overlap in there, and in some cases there are. It's. I think. I think. Um, I think this is a case of MTV did not plan for the music video to be. I mean, I don't think music videos are as relevant now. I don't know. Uh, um, As they they once were. Um, They certainly are relevant still, but I don't think there's the same thing. And I think when MTV made this award show, you know, the video was king. So instead of doing the MTV Music Awards, they wanted to stick with their brand. And this is something only MTV did at the time. Um, You know, there was no YouTube and there was no other really competition to show these music videos. So they were, I think this is kind of like their branding of themselves and promoting music videos. Um, but I think now it's just kind of like, it's, it's the MTV Grammys where people, you know, show up and say fuck on stage and everyone laughs (laughs) or, or someone poops or something. And they're like, Oh my God, (laughs) do you remember, do you remember that video music awards where somebody pooped and that person's like, on stage? How weird was that? Yeah, that that was really, that was crazy. Nobody's calling Uh, her. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's... Um, do they... Quick quick question. Do they do do they do they music at the People's Choice Awards? That, that's MTV, right? People's, People's Choice, Choice Awards. Uh, no, no, People's Choice Awards is not MTV. Um, who, says, who does People's Choice Awards on? Is it, I don't know. It's like on yeah, CBS I, say, I think it's CBS. It's, it's who on, does it, it's Chris? On the there. people do it. <laughs> it's... I think, I think it might... I think TV. it's been on Fox. I think it's one of those things that might uh, shuffle networks. Um... But that is, I think, unaffiliated with everything, and it's just a waste of time. Yeah. The People's Choice... Yeah. The, I, I have less respect for the People's Choice Award than I do for the Video Music Award, honestly. That is how little I respect... Because it's like people voting in an online yeah. poll, and that's just like the worst fucking thing in the world. Yeah. Well, my, my, my point was just merely this. is just like, I this is, I think, the most I've ever paid attention to what the VMAs were. And I guess in my mind, I always thought it was this distinct... It, well, it was something that covered both music and television and movies, not like something specifically as niche as music videos. I, I never knew that before. And this is, it's frankly a little weird to discover this. <laughs> I, I, it just seems like such a weird niche awards show. I mean, I'm sure it's out there, but I, I always thought it was just a little bit more like inclusive. Just MTV's trying to be really pop culturally relevant for a while. All right, on that note, I think uh, Video Music Weird. Awards, they're a strange thing that happens in the world once a year, and uh, we don't usually pay attention, we decided <laughs> to this year. Um, let's go ahead and move on to another story of this week. DC Comics is doing their zero month, where every comic book they release is issued number zero. They all have some sort of continuity tie-in where they're telling stories that happened before the new DC Comics universe started. Uh, one of them, the Green Lantern issue number zero, is issuing uh, is raising some controversy because it introduces a new Green Lantern who is an Arab American and is accused throughout most of the issue of being a terrorist. Um, what did you guys think about that? I don't know. Sam, did you read the issue? No. no okay, I well, we'll start with Chris then, and, and we'll, we'll come back around to you. Chris, what did you think about it? Uh, I actually like the issue quite a bit. Uh, I, I've seen, like a lot of the other review sites I've checked out, I've seen it pretty much runs the gamut. It's either... People really loved the issue, or they really hated the issue. I, I have to say, I didn't think it was the most original story you could tell with a character who had this kind of background. But I also think that um, the creators put enough heart into the character that I 
definitely empathize. The character's name is Simon Baz. I definitely found myself empathizing with the character, empathizing with the character. And uh, I didn't think that the story ever veered off into either being blatantly offensive or blatantly after school special, as I think it could have done, especially in a story that wasn't exactly terribly subtle or terribly original. I think John's walked the line very well and created a character that I, I'm very interested to see going forward. And I don't, I don't view as being a complete stereotype. And I don't think that the, the portrayal was as offensive as I think some other people uh, have found it. That being said, I'm not Arab American, so I don't know. Maybe I'm completely off base here. I, I mean, I agree. I think the issue did a good job of, of, you know, trying to say this is what it's like to be an Arab American in America in a post 9-11 world. And I think that's a hard thing to tackle in 22 pages while also introducing a new character and making them a Green Lantern. So I feel like they were, they were biting off a lot. Um, and I do have, I mean, I, I do think it was slightly problematic. I think a making the first, uh, marquee Arab American superhero, uh, a car thief is maybe not the best thing to do, but also, like you said, I think the character just worked. I think John's did a good job of developing a character that felt lived in, even in 22 pages. And as long as he's a character first and an Arab-American superhero second, you know, as long as they're true to developing an actual human being, then I think it'll work. See, and that, I, I definitely got that from the story. Like, I, I definitely um, felt like it was, it, it came down much more to the character than his ethnicity. I, I, I it, to me, it was just a guy who was running afoul of a streak of incredible bad luck. Not so much just this guy who was at the center of this storm of racial profiling and bad stereotypes. I, I, I could see how some people could see that, but that's not what I took from the issue. Yeah, I agree. Um, Sam, having not read the issue, do you want to weigh in on the idea of an Arab American superhero being accused of being a terrorist, or do you just want to pass? Um, I think it would be cool if they had an Arab American superhero who wasn't uh, accused of being a terrorist because <laughs> the only way you can have an Arab American superhero, the storyline has to involve him being accused of being a terrorist. I mean, I think it's a little, I mean, it's not like the most creative thing in the world, but I didn't read the issue. And if it was good, it was good. Uh, I, I trust Chris. Um, so if it was handled well, Godspeed, I say go for it. I'd, I'd say but, it was handled uh, well enough. Yeah, uh, I, I me, would definitely agree with that. Well enough, I think, to, is the best. To me, it's not the most original It was not idea. Um, yeah. And um, let me take this opportunity right now to plug, uh, by the time you guys are listening to this, you should be looking, I think, tomorrow, or perhaps the day after, for a special edition of the Review Be Named podcast, in which Chris and I will be taking a look at the first year of DC Comics' new universe. So we'll be talking about some of the best and some of the worst books, and doing a little bit more in-depth. So if you're a comics person and you do a lot of reading of that, or if you want to listen to Chris and I talk for a long time, tune in later this week and listen to that. Um, and with that, I think we should move on. I'm going to hand things off to you, Sam, and we're going to do the TV rundown and talk about some of the summer TV shows that have just had their finales. Um, well, of course, as I'm sure we all know, Breaking Bad ended its first half of the final season on Sunday. Um, and of course... Spoiler alert, you really shouldn't be listening to this if you haven't already watched it. Uh, Pause now, pause now, get out. (laughs) Yes, get out now. Um, Well, it seems that Walt has left some bathroom reading he shouldn't have left. 
And he is clearly doomed. Or actually, we're going to have to find out if he's doomed or how it's going to be handled. Guys, what did you think of the finale where Walt's uh, copy of Walt Whitman gets found? Or I guess it's Gail's copy of Walt Whitman. Guys, what did you think of that? Did you think it was a little too, uh, you know, happenstancy, Or did you think, oh, this is like an interesting, tragic fall? I... I think the whole episode was incredible in the way it completely subverted expectations and it would change the view of my view of the entire season in a way that um, Breaking Bad is fairly good at doing. Whereas I expected, I expected this season to end with, with, you know, Walt as triumphant criminal emperor uh, about to fall due to his, his epic pride and his, you know, short-sightedness and his lust for money and power. And instead the show went, in the similar direction of making him triumph and then said, well, look, he just has to live with this. He's got to deal with it day in and day out. At the end of the day, it just becomes a job. Um, and I loved that about it. As for the, the cliffhanger at the end, we knew eventually Hank was going to find out. When you have the, when you have a show about a, a chemistry teacher who starts dealing drugs and his brother-in-law is a DEA agent, eventually there will be conflict there. Eventually Hank is going to be tracking Walt. It's just going to happen. So I know it was going to happen at some point. And I think considering that, it was handled well. Um, I liked that it, it came back to the Walt Whitman, and I liked that Walt's fall from grace was so clear, closely tied with his pride in Hank being about to close the case back then. Uh, I think what season four, Hank's about to close the case, and Walt is like, "No, no, no! You got to keep looking at this guy. Uh, there's there's clearly another guy because Walt didn't want Gail to get all the credit." So I think that worked. What did you think, Chris? Yeah, I, I love that episode. I think we were talking the other day about how. It was, it kind of, it kind of uh, turned a lot of my um, conventional wisdom on how you do certain concepts in television just completely on its head. Where it's they sold this concept of uh, the tediousness of a routine taking its toll through um, compression. Like I, I, I never thought you could do that. Like I, I, I always thought like the conventional wisdom to me says if you want to like sell somebody just getting bored of what they always wanted you have to kind of stretch that out you have to kind of show us several episodes of walt just like losing the interest and being beaten down by the routine of life but they did that in just one episode they gave us almost i think almost about half a season's worth of developments within a single episode and it worked so so well um and really it really and, that single montage if you think about it that crystal blue persuasion yeah. montage, which by the way I love that they finally used that song, and they, I, I think they used it perfectly. I assume they were saving it up for a moment like this, and they just dropped it, and it was perfect. Oh, yeah, they've been yeah, holding on to that for a while. I think that montage, I mean, it's one of the best montages I think the show's ever done. It it clearly showed that Walt is is winning at this point, and things are going so, so well. Not only does it advance the character, but it also puts us in a place where it's like, you know, we know that this is not going to last and something is going to to change where we're at. And I think it, it led very well to the scene at the pool. And I don't know about you guys, but I was waiting for someone to pop out while everyone's just chatting at the pool and someone take a bullet to the brain oh, or yeah, something. I, oh, God, um, yeah. I was, I was expecting people's heads to start exploding that entire scene. Like, I was on the edge of my seat watching that. I think it's a credit to whoever directed this uh, finale and also to, you know, just the writers who have established that, you know, really it's, it took them, you know, 
the entire series to establish this scene in a way that this this can't end well. Yeah. And we've we've seen too much of Breaking Bad where, you know, when someone's having a good time, something horrible happens. Uh so I think that that scene at, was kind of a credit to the series as a whole. Um not just where this season has led us. Yeah, I think um and and, and when and when when it didn't when it didn't hit, there was like a slight relief and then there's Hank in the bathroom and I mean, I don't think anyone really saw that coming. No, in hindsight, it's obvious, but I definitely didn't see it coming. Also, the inscription in the book, I was listening to uh, Dan Feinberg and Alan Steppenwell's podcast, and they were talking about how that we hadn't seen that inscription before, but I could have sworn we had. I'm pretty sure we have, because, yeah, I I, I was listening to that as well, and Steppenwell said he didn't think it was on camera. I'm pretty sure it was. It It sounds very familiar to me. Because they even showed the flashback of Hank talking to Walt about the WW. And, and so we at least know that the inscription was written because Hank's like, who do you think WW could be? You know, Walt Whitman? Willy Wonka, you know, Walter White. What, Willy Wonka, Walter White. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you got uh, me. Which was, I, I mean, that, that was a great moment and a great, a great setup earlier in the series, which, you know, I always, I always respect uh, when, shows, when shows drop something like that and they're like, this is how much even better that, you know, scene was. You know, like that, where where Hank, we we see a character reaching back on a memory, um, and the show the show is you know fortunately was able to show us. We could have just had Hank, you know, kind of stare up, going, which kind of he did, um, stare up, going up. But you can tell on his face that he got it; he's put it together. Um, but at the same time, we got we got that flashback, and it's like we're looking at Hank's memories here. And we see, you know, where we're put, even though, of course, we know Walter White is Walter White. We put it together with him. I, I, I love and that. I think it's a I think fantastic it was a moment. Scene the first time around, and I think it was, I think it was perfect for them to have done that brief little flashback to remind us of that moment. I think, yeah, I think it was executed perfectly. Let me let me ask you guys something. I a lot of the criticisms I've heard, both from some other reviewers as well as people I know who watch the show, is that leaving the book out was uncharacteristically careless of Walt, where I, I disagree 100%. I bought it 1,000% that he would do that. Um, he Everything we've seen this past season has just shown us that Walt is just getting more and more careless. And I think it really comes down to, like, when you really, th- at the end of the day, I mean, terrible things have happened to Walt and those people and the people around him, but he's been lucky. He has been damn, damn lucky this entire time. And he think I think he attributes a lot of that luck to his own um, capabilities as a manipulator and as a planner. But a lot of the, his success, when it comes down to it, has just been blind luck and the people around him moving in ways that he didn't see. So I completely buy that he would just be getting more and more comfortable to the point where he would leave a trophy lying around. But what did you guys think of that? Yeah, I think it's a testament to his pride. I think it's, Walt's always been prideful, and this season especially, we've seen his pride getting in the way of him thinking things through. He thinks he's invulnerable, and he's, you know, he's sort of bringing Jesse around the house and and showing, basically showing things off in front of Skylar, who obviously knows, but he's just, he's started to become too assured of himself, and he, I think that slip up makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you guys. Um, you know, if this season, 
has had any criticism waged against it, which I actually agree with, is that because it is the half season, I think things have been a little rushed um, in that this show is normally a slower burn. Um, I, I think I would have, I would have, I wish that this, this arc could have been a whole season and the second half could have been a whole season. Um, maybe that's just me wanting more Breaking Bad. Um, but I, I, I get the feeling and I, I've read this a lot I, in places too. I, I would not yeah, argue. Obviously the more Breaking more Bad, Breaking the better. Bad. And I think that the full arc would have made more sense, but go ahead, go on. Well, it's just, it, I think it moved a little fast. And it, it's not that Walt's, like, insane pride doesn't make sense. It absolutely makes sense. It's where the show was going. Um, but I think that, you know, by episode one or two, he was he was already, like, you know, basically going, I'm king of the mountain, king of the mountain, da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, or he's like, we do what I say. You know, I think I might have wanted it to go a little more slowly, Um and if this if this was like a sixteen episode season that ended with Hank finding the book, I mean, I think we could have gotten we could have dug even deeper. Um, just thinking about that makes me wonder how much deeper they could have gone. And I think it would have been nice to go a little bit more slowly. Um, but at the same time, I mean, this is like kind of the circumstance that the show has had to deal with. Um, well, so also, I can't really progress. Also, that. these eight episodes took place over a longer period of time than you know seasons before this the whole series up to 51 the third episode of this season was a year and we know that we're going to a place where Walt's going to be 52 we know we're going to get through another year and so like even the last episode of this season took us through three months which is an astronomical amount of time based on what the average episode of the show would have done um and i mean yeah it kind of makes it makes you wonder how quickly things will go or whether there will be a huge jump um I, I mean, the big cliffhanger is what is what do you guys think Hank is going to do? And I guess I guess we kind of know that Walt is going to hit the road. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 we we've seen Hank as a resourceful investigator in the past, especially even when he's out on his own without the resources of the DA fully behind him to back him up. And given how careless Walt has been thus far, I, I, I think Hank both by necessity of the show and by the established positions of the characters we've seen thus far, I think Hank's going to suss out things pretty quickly. Yeah, I think the only reason Hank hasn't caught Walt already is because he's got a blind spot for Walt. And if he actually turns his very perceptive investigatory eyes on it, you know, if he's really investigating this, he it'll I think it'll take him seconds to figure it out, really. there Walt has not done a good job of cleaning up after himself he's got a trail if anyone looked at him the only reason he's gotten away with everything this this long is that no one looked at walter white yeah um one last thing i want to talk about before we move on and talk about the newsroom is i just think i'm really impressed by this show i feel like with the exception of season one which was a half season due to the right writer strike i think every season finale of the show could just as effectively have been the series finale and I would have been happy. Like, each of them has taken us to a place and, and did, given us a reveal that even when it was a cliffhanger, was like, I could see this being the end of the show. I could see this being the end of the journey. And I think that's an amazing and, and really impressive thing for the show that, to have pulled off. So Breaking Bad is great. <laughs> yes. That is, what, yes it is. that is what we have learned today. Um, <laughs> So we are all going to be stuff. eagerly anticipating the second half of the season, which is coming next year. Uh, uh, 
And uh, until then, I don't know. I don't know. Go into hibernation or something and wake up. Next <laughs> um, but also, Breaking Bad apparently is not the only television show on this summer. Uh, Aaron Sorkin's newsroom, as I understand it, came to a conclusion. I only watched the pilot, which I thought was okay, and didn't watch the rest because I don't have HBO. Um, but guys, I understand that you did. Uh, what are your thoughts on the series as a whole and the finale? Jordan, All right, kick it well, off. I should start by saying I'm an immense Aaron Sorkin fan. Uh, the West Wing is one of my favorite shows of all time. I love Sports Night to Death, and I keep telling people who haven't seen it to get on board and watch that because I think it's a great, really funny show. I even watched and enjoyed Studio 60 throughout its entire run. The pilot of Studio 60 was the best episode the show ever did, but I thought the show was better than its reputation throughout. Um, Social Network is a great script. A Few Good Men is one of my favorite legal movies, and I'm a, a law student and a giant legal nerd, so that's saying a lot. I, I just love Aaron Sorkin, and I did not love the newsroom, um, which is not surprising, I'm sure. I, uh, <laughs> I have myriad problems with it. I think it's a, a shoddy piece of work from Sorkin. I'll start off by saying that and hear what Chris has to say, but uh, we can talk more in depth about this in a minute. What did you think, Chris? Well, I, too, would consider myself to be a huge Sorkin fan. I have not quite seen as much of his work as you have. Uh, the big gap in my Sorkin history is Sports Night. Uh, I almost called it Sports Zone for a second. Sports Night. Um, Sports Zone starts. <laughs> Shout out. Um, I, I also watched Studio 60. I did not like it quite as much as you did, Jordan. I loved The West Wing, loved Social Network. Um, I also was not a huge fan of the newsroom. For me, it almost completely fell flat. There were a few moments here and there where I saw potential, but the show almost became a parody of itself towards the middle of the season, and that's a real shame because I was very much looking forward to Sorkin being able to really let loose on a network like HBO. I, yeah, I agree. I was very excited for this show. In fact, earlier this year on the website, we did a, a list of the 20 things you're most excited about in 2012, and the newsroom was absolutely on. I think it was near the top of the list because it's Aaron Sorkin on HBO. That's very exciting. And it almost felt... It, it, this show could have been, like, if it was five minutes long instead of ten episodes long, it could have been any sketch comedy show doing a parody of an Aaron Sorkin show almost exactly as easily as it was an Aaron Sorkin show. Like, it just, <laughs> it just felt true. like someone doing a bad impression of Aaron Sorkin to the point that it was laughable. Um, before we get into digging apart everything we hate about it, is there anything about the show that you really liked from episode to episode? Uh, I liked the... I liked a bigger um, profile for Olivia Munn. I think if any positive came out of this show was she really caught my attention as an actress and I look forward to seeing her in her next project. Not this one. Um, for me, that's the main thing. I, I, I think um, Jeff Daniels and Sam Larson were great. I expected them to be but olivia munn for me was the only real surprise that came out of the show and the only real uh i think win dif like complete yeah. win that i can identify going forward from season one i agree i actually i think the cast was just stacked full of great actors and i think most of them either took a long time or never really got good at reading sorkin dialogue i mean emily mortimer is a great actress who every time she had to give a sorkin joke it just it didn't come out of her mouth right. It just didn't sound like, like you know, a Sorkin joke. It just it sounded like her saying something strange and she seemed like a crazy person. Um, but I agree that the great thing about, the greatest thing about the show, and it was surprising to me, 
Um, I, I've been a proponent of Olivia Munn as a funny person for a long time when there was that whole, oh, she just got hired on The Daily Show because she's attractive, uh, kerfluffle. I think she's very funny um, and a very capable comedian, but she was, she was the best part of this show every week. The more storylines she had and the, the larger screen time she had, the better the episode was, in my opinion. She was amazing by comparison to the rest of the her, her Her character arc di- took a dive for me in the last couple episodes. I think you know exactly what I'm yeah, referring. Yeah, when, when they decided uh, for no when, reason when she, she was in love with one of the other characters. Yeah. like one of the, I think one of the reasons we both liked her so much is that not only was it a great performance on the part of Olivia Munn, but she was... For the majority of the season, the only character who never got sucked into this bizarre love... Well, I, I don't even know what the shape is. It just kept expanding yeah, as time it's, went on. It's like, a, it's like <laughs> a, a rolling stone, you know? Uh, really, it's like a yeah. snowball, actually, you know? It kept pulling in more characters, and I was like, why is this happening? Why are so many people in love with one of these people in this giant, like, ever-expanding web of love triangles? Um it, but I yeah, think there are two reasons that she it, was such a great character besides her performance, which was, she was the only one that was delivering Sorkin dialogue, as I think it should be delivered, really. But I think, A, yes. Sorkin... I, I never thought Sorkin had a woman problem like some people did until I watched this show. And in a show full of like, horrible caricatured stereotypes of like incompetent, wacky women, she was a competent woman who was getting things done. And, and she was not involved in all the silly uh, relationship stuff. So she had the confidence factor going for her, and she had the fact that she was sitting on the sidelines kind of mocking everything that was going on, which I liked. Yeah, yeah, and then I that everything that the character had going for her was completely just driven off the rails, where in the last episode she enters into, I think it's a love pentagon at this point. Yeah, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a five-way I'm really surprised that Neil isn't, isn't grabbed up in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he will. He eventually, will. eventually point, Neil's going to fall in love with somebody, or all of them. That would be the most interesting, actually. If he if he gets off Neil his big foot thing and just falls in love with everybody involved in the Love Pentagon. <laughs> I don't. I, I think uh, we're going to get a season to assist from Sorkin at this point for revealing future uh, plot developments. <laughs> um. So three three big fins that I think has been talked about a lot, and we don't need to spend too much time on them, but they're huge flaws of the show. Sure. The first thing. The time delay, like the fact that it takes place in the recent past, um, A, that means that you kind of know what's coming in every single episode. B, it, it gives the characters when they get a scoop, it means they're actually stealing a scoop from real journalists, which pissed me off. Because A, most of these scoops were done by print journalists who never got credit on the show at all and were actually denigrated for most of the season. And B, real people who, if Sorkin trying to try, uh, you know, trump up journalism as a positive real people did real great work to do all these stories and he was able to escape over all of them and also i think it it turned out to be to bring out the worst side of sorkin which is like when he was dealing with real events it's hindsight's 2020 and it was just sorkin being like this is the way the world should have handled it and it it came off as smug and condescending it it really did uh and the episode i really want to point to here is the one it was uh the first part of the two-parter with um where they were covering um the Casey Anthony trial and you have um what's his name uh Don is showing them how Casey Anthony works and it's basically Don is the voice of Sorkin pointing out how cable news manipulates you but you could just do the same kind of um presentation for that episode and show you how Sorkin is manipulating Yeah exactly it's it it it, it, it was ridiculous it, it was almost laughably hypocritical at point. Like, I, I agree with many of the things he was saying, but 
uh, at a certain point, the characters were just his mouthpiece rather than actual characters that you wanted to get invested and be interested. And coming back to this point a minute ago, you asked me if there was something I liked about the show. I, I, I want to talk about the character of Don for a minute because us, there were definitely times where um, Sorkin definitely lost me with the character. But this was... Um, he, he was originally the producer of the the, the newsroom show... And then he um, jumped ship when the newsroom went off in this different direction, being this um, Quixote-esque um, quest to raise the level of uh, television journalism in this country. And um, I, I found him to be actually, in some cases, one of the more interesting characters of the show, just because he was one of the more believable ones to me. Like, this is the guy, this was the only guy in the room who understood that it's a give and take that there are that there are realities of this business of television news that you can't escape and yeah i loved i loved the platonic aspects of sorkin's universe but i didn't love it here and i liked don for exactly that reason where he's the one saying guys you just can't do whatever you want you know like the pilot episode was called we just decided to and that's such an arrogant smug and unrealistic depiction of how the real world works yeah, and and the thing that bothered me was it's like I, I found him to be the most real character in that he was the most well rounded and flawed characters, except for the points where Sorkin decided to jump dump on him and portray him as a complete jackass or an idiot. Um It just it just didn't work for me in a lot of places. Alright, well I think we've we've probably shut on it enough. Um will you watch season two? Let me ask you that. <sighs> yes. I will. That's, that's exactly my response. I don't want to, but as long as the newsroom's on the air, I'm going to watch it. And I really hope that Sorkin sits in a corner by himself for a while and thinks about how season one went wrong <laughs> and tries to make it better in season two. Because this this still could be a great television show. It, you know, it could be a show that gets it, gets into gear in season two and becomes excellent. Aaron Sorkin is, I still think, one of the greatest writers in uh, television right now. And he's got the budget and he's got the, to- the, you know, the, the lead time. And he's got the cast that could make this a great television show. And so I really hope he retools and we come back with a, a, a good show in season two. I'm not expecting it. I expect to hate it, to hate it and continue watching it out of some weird sick sense of loyalty and uh, sadism. But <laughs> Well, I'll be right there well, with you. We'll probably talk about this again next year. Uh, for now, let's go ahead and move on and play a little bit of Would You Rather. So Sam and Chris, I think you're both familiar with this. We're going to do the structure... Um, on this show, we're okay with shameless stealing, so I'm going to go ahead and borrow the structure of Would You Rather that is done in the excellent podcast Comedy Bang Bang, so you guys should listen to that if you don't. Um, but the way this game is played, I'm going to give you a Would You Rather scenario. You can ask me any question you'd like. I will be able to answer it. I have all the answers to the hypothetical. So whatever weird questions you think might influence your decision, feel free to ask. Then you will have to vote on which side of the scenario you'd prefer to have. So this week's Would You Rather question... Uh, it's obviously pop culture related because we're your main podcast. Would you rather have to watch Human Centipede with every first date or have to watch every season of Two and a Half Men with someone before you could consummate the relationship? Floor's open for questions. Sam, do you have any questions? Uh, what was the first option? The first option is watch Human Centipede with on, every, on every first date. Or uh, watch every season of Two and a Half Men before consummating the relationship. Yes. Uh, who? who uh, 
Hmm. This is just any relationship we're talking about that you so get into? Anytime you go on a first date or yeah, anytime you're in a relationship, depending on which one you pick. Where are we watching this stuff? Is it in the movie theater? Is it at my house? It's at your house. Okay. Do we have to pay attention? Or could it just no, be No, you on have to watch it. It's not, you can't like be talking to each other or, uh, you know, on your computer. You actually, you, you have to be watching the film and then, or the, the television program. And then you have to have a discussion about it Do afterwards. we, do we have to, are, is, is this something that is understood to this person too? Or do we have to like convince them? Like through some sort of Yeah, are they aware of this problem yeah. we no, have to they don't have? Know. So we have to justify Please. this somehow. Oh god. Yeah, so you have to you have to justify it somehow. And also, um if you if you are picking the two and a half men option, you cannot tell the person that you can't have sex until you finish watching two and a half men. It's just a fact. So you have to get them through every single episode of two and a half men and dodge the fact that they don't know why you're not sleeping with them. It's like 200 episodes of that yeah. fucking thing. Uh, yeah, there, there's a... How many seasons have there been? I don't know, like 10. <laughs> I'm going to look this up. up right now. Yeah. Um, so, any, do, you have, do you have other questions about, about this? Uh, there have been four... No, seven... Jesus! There have been ten... Se- no, there have been nine seasons of Two and a Half Men... There will be a tenth. And, I mean, you'll have to watch the new episodes as well before you can do it. So, yeah, that's going to be around... That's going to be 200 episodes right there. Yeah. I got to go with Human Centipede. Well, I mean, we had we hadn't closed the closed the question stand yet, but uh, good to know that Chris is going to be influenced by Human Centipede. Sam, do you have any other questions to ask, or are you ready to vote as well? Uh, I think I'm ready All to right. vote. All right, what are you voting for? Um, I'm going to vote for Human Centipede. I think I feel like I can play that off better than every every episode of two and a half men there's 200 of these fuckers yeah i mean looking at in terms of a it's a ridiculous time commitment versus like okay two hours i think i can play that off um hopefully it it, it, two and a half men just looks like more of a fetish like you have more time to put together like the pieces of like this is some sort of bizarre fetish ritual that you'd have to go through. Whereas as long as my first dates aren't talking to each other, hopefully no one will ever figure out the human centipede thing. Yeah, unfortunately you guys didn't ask the question, so you didn't find out that you have to decorate your apartment like the basement in Human Centipede. How how would that ever come up? Uh well you should have asked. That's how the game is played, so so you have to you have to watch Human Centipede in an in an apartment that is decorated like the set of Human Centipede. No! Wait a minute, no. wait a minute, wait a minute. I already unfair. asked that question. It's completely unfair. I already asked that question. I said, is it in my apartment? And I did. You, said you didn't yes. ask what the decorations of your apartment were like. Okay. <laughs> Fuck you and your game. Do Let's I have move to on. turn her into a human centipede after? I like, mean, that's optional. Apparently this is an entirely scenario. If that's what you're into, I wouldn't suggest it. All right, so that's how we play Would You Rather. Um, I think we're going to be doing that every once in a while on the show, because I at least enjoy that. Um... <laughs> And, it's a game Jordan can win, and right? we're gonna hand. Hey, I'm, 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 I didn't win. I didn't even play. I was, <laughs> I was judging, which is fantastic because uh, I am on quite the losing streak over on Leonard Maltin's movie game. At this point, I think I should just get every question wrong on that for as long as we do the feature. I, 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 if I started winning now, it'd just be <laughs> depressing. Yeah. Um. So let's move on. Let's hand things over to you, Chris, and let's uh, 
revisit the review game movie club. Oh, we're only gonna do one round of. Would you rather? I think that's enough. We're coming up. In yeah, we're uh, we're we're cutting All it right. close, so uh, so we're gonna move on to okay. the movie club. Let's uh let's let's breeze through this then. Uh, so let, let me just start off real open ended. What did you guys think of Bronson? Just general thoughts, and then we'll identify a few key areas to talk about. So what what were your overall impressions? Liked it? Disliked it? Was an enjoyable evening, or did you leave finding yourself saying what the fuck? Starting with Sam. Um, I love Bronson. Um, I remember this was a movie uh, my brother told me to watch a little while ago because I love Drive so much, and of course they both have the same director. Um, and they're both incredibly different movies, and I think it was a great way. Um, this is a true story, at least from what I understand, it's almost all true. Um, except I think some things are a little hazy in there. But um, it's I think it's kind of a brilliant way to tell you know, to make a biopic. Um, it's not, it's not by the book. It's not, um, just perfectly linear. Um, it's basically, you know, you have Tom Hardy, who's the probably, I think a star making performance. Um, I guess, I guess after this, he kind of became a known entity and then got all these roles we now know him for. Um, he is, he is flat out brilliant in it. And he, you know the body transformation he went through for to become Bane. I think he might have been bigger to play Bronson, honestly. Um, but basically, the construct of the movie is that he's telling the story to an audience, and that he's this idea that he's a showman, and that you know he's a famous criminal, but it's he's also a performer. Um, I thought it was brilliantly handled. Um, he was he was fucking fantastic in it, and it was it was kind of showing like what these two talents, uh, Tom Hardy and Nicholas Wending Reffin, it showed what these two guys can do. Um, so I think it's, I think it was a great pick for a movie to talk about. Um, and I think if you haven't seen it and you want to learn more about, uh, Nicholas Reffin or Tom Hardy, I think this is absolutely an important movie to watch. Um, loved it. Yeah. I, I'm going to agree with you on pretty much everything you said. I actually, I hadn't watched it until Chris picked it for the movie club and I had to go out and watch it. And it was incredible. It was, I mean, Drive was my favorite movie of last year. So I was already planning on going back and seeing more of Reference Work because it's the only Nicholas Winton Reference movie I'd seen as of last year. Um, and just like that, it was as good as it was and as different from Drive as it was, was incredible to me. This is, I mean, both of his movies have, have a, a certain construct about them, uh, but the, the, the gimmick, if you will, the construct of the movie is so different, and both are so incredibly pulled off. Uh, it was just a fantastically directed movie, and again, was just a, a stellar central performance. I mean, I thought Ryan Gosling was very good as the driver, um, but you can't even, it doesn't even hold a candle with Tom Hardy as Bronson. He's, it's one of those, it's, I, would, I would call it a tour de force. I would go that far. It's, you know, it's, it's a big, powerful performance that never feels over the top. He feels like a, a maniacal showman, that, which is exactly what the movie was going for, and he just pulls it off to the T. And it, this is a, it's, a, it's a very dark story told, you know, it doesn't pull any punches, but it also has it, it, that sort of, you know, three-ring circus uh, feel to it that I thought was just very great. And I, I loved the movie. I think it was a great pick, Chris. Yeah, the one-man show aspect of it I thought was a great framing device that kind of kept the movie going. Uh, I mean, it this is, the entire movie is just the Bronson show. It is just such an intense 
character study. I mean, minor characters will filter in and out, usually just one at a time. But everything is always just so focused and so centered on Bronson that um, I, I, I think one of the main criticisms uh, that was lobbed to drive a lot of the times is that it was a very minimalist performance on the part of Ryan Gosling. Um, I don't really want to get into that right now because I think we have people who will, that could be in itself a whole big topic of discussion. But I think what we saw here is Reffin's ability to really get an incredible performance out of a very talented actor. And this, just everything coming down to him, focused on him, and this larger-than-life person who, at equal times, you were terrified of and fascinated to be around and just wanted to spend more time with, even in these, like, dark, terrifying cells. It was it, it was just a great, great film to watch, and it just pulled you along. And I, I think, like Bronson himself, you never knew quite how you thought about him, the character. It's... It's. It was very interesting. I, I love the film. Great stuff. Absolutely. I think we can all say if you haven't seen Bronson, you should see Bronson. Um, and also, you should have been listening to the podcast and gone and seen Bronson before this. So I don't know what you're doing. Yeah. But uh, just just quick mention to a great great cameos by uh, Matt King, who is one of my um, uh, favorite actors to see show up in a lot of things. Um, great little moments from him. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I really, I, I can't think of a bad thing to say about the movie. I think it's, it was just, yeah. Considering what it was trying to do, I think it, it executed on every single point, and it was just, it was incredibly well made. I wish I had seen it during the year. Probably, it probably. I mean, it definitely would have been in contention for my top ten of uh, what was it, two thousand and eight. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely yes. would have been in contention. Yep. It might have, it might have made the list. It was, it was that good. So, go see Bronson, everybody. If you didn't already, it's on Netflix. Watch instantly. Go check it out. The last comment I want to make here is that um, I, I, I recently saw uh, Lawless, and as a credit to Tom Hardy's skills as an actor, I in in a relatively short span of time I've seen uh, The Dark Knight Rises, Bronson, and Lawless, and in those three movies, Tom Hardy delivers a performance as a completely different kind of terrifying this presence that is incredibly imposing and absolutely terrifying but each one is unique each one is completely different tom hardy is an absolutely amazing actor and i he, he's become one of those actors that i will seek out what he's in i will give a look to even if it is something like um whatever the spy for spy thing he was in with chris pine like i he's built up so much goodwill that i will even give that a look i think you're right i think he's he's an actor who i'm gonna be seeking out his movies just to watch his performing because he's so good. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, before we, before we close down the movie club segment of the podcast, I want to announce our next pick. Um, we talked about this before and it was, I think it's probably clear this is coming. Um, when the sight and sound poll came out, we discussed that. And the one movie near the top of the list, it was number three on the list that none of us had seen uh, Tokyo story. So in the next few weeks, we're going to be revisiting uh, the Rebeening Movie Club, and our next movie will be Tokyo Story. So go check that out if you want to play along at home, and otherwise, um, get ready, because in the next uh, three or four episodes of this podcast, we'll be talking about that. Um, and with that, uh, anyone have any last comments before we close out the movie club? Nope. We're Let's close it. Close the, the book. The book is closed, and now we've come to the point in the show, I know you've all been waiting for it, the announcement of the Rachel Tardif Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week winner. Uh, 
We've been tabulating all, all show with our very complicated system of tabulations. We've had gerbils running through their wheels to power it the entire time. And uh, we do have a winner. So it was, it was a close week, but the winner of the Rachel Tardis Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week is Daniel Craig. Congratulations, Daniel. Yay. You get to remain James Bond. You, you not only get to continue playing James Bond, we've given you permission, but you can also come down to Review Named and pick up your trophy and your small cash prize. So, Daniel Craig, come on over and pick it up. I'm sure you'll listen to this. And uh, with that, we're going to wrap up the week. So, it, before we do, as always, let's pitch uh, the site. If you do not read our site, you should check it out at reviewtobenamed.com. If you have any ideas for future installments of the podcast, future would-you-rather questions, future games we should play, future segments, or future nominees for the Rachel Todd Memorial Award, you should let us know either on the site by commenting at our email address at reviewtobenamed at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter and let us know there at reviewtobenamed. So lots of avenues to check us out, follow us, and let us know what you think, uh, how much you hate certain things and how much you love others. Please let us know. We'll do more of the things you love, less of the things you hate. Unless you're terrible, and then we'll probably just try to annoy you. Um, so with that, uh, <laughs> thank you for listening as always, and have a great week. Bye. Bye.